The Guardian. This is Bridie Jabour and... This is Michael Safi. And we're talking about the second day of the resumed coronial inquest. Bridie, what did we see on day two? So today we've seen people who knew man Haron Monis over the years from when he first tried seeking asylum in Australia in 1996 right up until last year. Uh, we heard from a solicitor, we heard from a former boss, we heard from Salvation Army workers, we, held, we heard from someone who worked with Amnesty International, heard from a customs official, just at all different points. We've met him over the past, what, 13 years? And we were saying that, that key words keep coming up in the way that everybody describes man, Harold Monus, or whatever name he went under when they knew him. And I mean, some of those words we said were sort of cerebral, cerebral courteous, polite. Serious. Reserve. Curious. Thinker. A lot of people would say he was a thinker. That's right. Someone said that whenever he wasn't dealing with a member of the public as a security guard, he'd be standing there and they said his mind was always churning. It was always just ticking away with, with deep thoughts. I think two quotes that stood out to me today was a quote from a former boss of his who was in charge of him from 97 to 99 when he was a security guard who said he never smiled. That's right. And he said on the stand, I had to try really, really, I had to make a really, really good joke. I had to try really hard if I was going to get him to crack a smile. And the second quote was from a woman who worked with Amnesty International who interviewed him when he was complaining that his human rights had been violated. And she said he was a man on a soapbox playing the noble victim. Right. And I mean, those two conversations, they're about 13 years apart from each other. And we see that over between 97 and 2010, it's an increasingly unhinged man, Haron Monis, that, that emerged from, from the testimony today. Yes, becoming more easily agitated, more paranoid. Paranoid was another word that we heard more from witnesses who knew him probably from about 2004, 2005 onwards. Yeah, and one of his, one of his obsessions was, was this idea that um, customs, the AFP and possibly also ASIO were sort of conspiring to take revenge against him for the uh, harsh sentence dealt out to Chappelle Corby in Indonesia. Yes, and he also compared his treatment to that of, um, I'm going to mess up how I pronounce his name, and I know you know how to pronounce it, Abu... Bakar Bashir. Over in one of the, ba- the Bali bomber over in Indonesia, who people thought he got a light sentence, and he thought that he was being punished in Australia by customs officers because of that. That's right. That, that, that he had this sense that, you know, naturally Australian customs officers would feel slighted by the, you know, two and a half year sentence that Abu Bakar Bashir got. And so they'd be looking to take revenge on people who look like... Uh, man, man, Heron Monus. But Bridie, you were saying that despite that these, despite these persistent complaints, he actually got a pretty fair hearing from customs. He did, and I think all through the past uh, fifteen years in Australia, it was noted how he was well treated and he he was given proper hearings. So customs, he wrote, he got his solicitor to write letters of complaints to customs saying he was being unfairly targeted. I believe he used the word persecuted, and. Um, to test this out or to prove it, he flew to New Zealand and back on the same day to say these customs officials are unfairly targeting me and asking me too many questions. And in turn, customs gave him a tour of Sydney Airport to show him how customs officials dealt with everyone. And some of the questions that he was upset about being asked was, where are you travelling to today? Why are you travelling there? You know, the sort of routine things that all international travellers get asked. So they gave him a tour to try and show him and calm him and show him that, no, everyone got asked those questions. It wasn't just him. Exactly. He went to amnesty with complaints. And again, he got to sit down with a lawyer, with a refugee advocate, and they were very careful and they they listened to everything he had to say. And despite that, he was a man who seemingly couldn't be satisfied. 
No, and he no, he couldn't, and he seemed to also be reasonable in some parts. Like I, the other thing I noted from these meetings is that they felt that these meetings went well. The customs officer said he thought the meeting went well. His solicitor would say, oh, "I thought a meeting went well," and then within twenty four hours, two days, a week, he would be back with the same complaints, going increasingly agitated over time. The other thing that I think I think is beginning to emerge, and it is only day two, but Jeremy Gormley, the the uh, council assisting who's leading this uh, coronial inquest, we're beginning to see this uh, this picture of Monis emerge, um, and I think it's founded on a couple of things. One of the things is that Gormley's been very very careful to always disassociate Monis from the Muslim community in Australia. I mean, we don't know what he's going to conclude at the end, but. At every opportunity he's had, he said this man was rejected by this community, rejected by the minority Ahmadi sect, rejected by the Iranian community. Um, and that he's also said that, and he's emphasized this on two days now, it, it was these emails that were sent to Monas that were virulently racist, very violent, very offensive. They were sent in response to the, the equally offensive letters that Monas was sending to the families of dead servicemen. And he made the point yesterday that he was a man who was on the edge and he could have gone either way. And probably with these letters, they probably tipped him one way rather than the other. You think so? What do you think is the, uh, when you say he could have gone either way, do you mean that he could, could have distanced himself more from society and done something violent, which is what happened? Or maybe he could have sought the help that he perhaps needed? Is that yeah, what you mean? Yeah, or, or else kind of retreated into his shell or, you know, kept doing what he was doing, which was basically, you know, turning himself into a kind of um, sort of a serial pest. Yes, he could continue down that path, but I think that uh, one of the big factors, and I feel like Gormley is emphasising this as well, he was facing a very lengthy jail sentence. He'd been before the courts, what, since 2001 at various times, but he'd just been charged with something like 40 sexual assault offences. And he'd also been charged with being an accessory to attempted murder. But just on those sexual assault offences, he was looking at a very lengthy time in jail. The other thing that struck me today, and it may go nowhere, but uh, Gormley was very insistent with the, the first witness um, in the stand today. He was, he was the witness himself. He's a colloquial Arabic speaker. He's of Lebanese background, and Gormley was asking again and again, "Could Monas understand colloquial Arabic?" And he kept trying to draw out this fact that Monas could only speak um, classical or sort of Quranic Arabic. And you know, I was I was confused as to why he was trying. He was he was belaboring that point. Um, I'm interested to see whether he is trying to whether that thread will kind of lead to something later on down the track. But that well, remains he, to be seen. he wrote a lot of his anti-government poetry in Arabic, and he also gave a. Um, it was revealed today that the man who oversaw his community, his court-ordered community service, he gave him a book that he had written in Arabic. So I'm thinking that it might come back to something that was written in these books, and it, it might have to do with that. But you're right, and Gormley also very much emphasised yesterday that it was classical Arabic and went to pace to explain what the classical Ar- Arabic is as, well, is as well. So I think that, I think you're right that this could be, end up being a fact that's going to, um, it could have a big impact on the findings at the end. Yeah, we'll see. We've been sitting in this inquest for two days now, which is not very long in the grand scheme of how long this inquest is going to go for. But I really feel like we've learned a lot about this man. And the picture certainly isn't becoming any clearer. Well, not for me anyway. What about you? What have, what struck you in what we've learned about him and the type of person that he was? Yeah, I mean, look, I guess for all the facts that have flown at us about Manharan Monas, he remains, I think, um, more enigmatic than ever. And for me, it's this, this contrast of someone who was able to manipulate so many people, women in particular. I mean, he was, he was married, well, I think, three times. Um, he, had, he had a lot of children, at least five. And yet, 
Everyone we spoke to said that there was something alienating about him, that he was a difficult man to connect with. He always seemed to have something going on in his head that he would never share. And what struck me about it, he just seems a very alone man, a man that is very alone in this world. And at, at this point of the inquest, we have only heard from people who know him in a kind of professional sense or have crossed paths with him because of work or something like that. And But Gormley, the council assisting, said yesterday that it was very hard to actually find people who knew him socially. And I'm very struck by how alone he was here, but also while running these like simultaneous multiple sexual relationships with many women, assaulting, assaulting women as well as having consensual relationships. And yeah, it's a real, um, a real mixed picture that's emerging. Yeah, and so the question is, it's day two and this whole two-week period focuses on Monus's biography. I wonder if by the end we'll come out with a picture that's any clearer. So tomorrow we'll be sitting back at this table again after listening to his psychiatrists, psychologists and various other mental health workers who worked with Monus over the years. And we'll see what they have to say. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.